The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. Last week we wrapped up seven months in the book of Genesis. Pastor Mitch finished up that whole series for us. We did the first 11 chapters. Next week we start First John. So today I wanted to take one Sunday to just talk about who we are what the church is and who the church is. I'm calling today just simply, we are the church. And uh, we're actually going to come back and revisit this idea of uh, we are the church in August and in September as we head into the fall. But today's a day for us just to kind of pause. You know, my wife and I, my family, we moved here a little over seven months ago. We've been just embedding into the community, bought a house, hallelujah. I'm now poor for the rest of my life. Uh, my son graduated from North Medford High School. Like, uh, I've got poison oak like seven times. I'm a true local. It really works out now. So, so, but we've been here, and, 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 I've, and I've loved, I've cherished our Sunday mornings. I was talking to the pastors a couple of weeks ago, and we were sharing highs and lows. And my high was that I know no names. And I, when, I see, when people walk in, I know their names. And I, I've had coffee with you. I've been to your house. I know your story. I know the things you're struggling with. I know the things you're doing good. With. And it's just so exciting to feel like this is our home. This is our family. And, and the Rogue Valley is where we live, and Medford is our home. And, and, and we've been working with the staff and the elders, and, 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 and I'm excited about the things that God has been revealing as we've been doing really hard work behind the scenes, have not shared a ton of that from the pulpit. So today is an opportunity for us to ask uh, three questions. The three questions we're going to ask today are this. What is the church, biblically? Second question we're going to ask is, what does the church do? And then the third question we're going to ask is, what does our church do? So what is the church? What does the church do, biblically? And then in light of that, as a church embedded in Jackson County, Southern Oregon, Medford, Oregon, what does our church do in response to what God has called his church to be? Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this opportunity for us to gather as your church in this place. God, I thank you for the amazing way the blood of Jesus, um, God, forgives us, redeems us, leads us to new life, adopts us into a new family. And so though as we gather in this space, we all have different family trees from an earthly perspective, but we've all, those of us that are in Christ have been born again into your family, so we are the family of God. We are brothers and sisters in Christ, God, and we are a part of your church, the holy church. God, as we look at the scriptures today, as we ask the question, what is the church? As we ask the question, what does the church do? As we look at our church and we ask God, what have you called us to do and how have you called us to be in this season? God, would you just anoint this time? God, would would this vision be your vision? Would these words be your words? God, would you spark desire and ambition and a a desire for obedience in the hearts and minds of our church? God, we invite you to meet us in this place. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So, uh, what is the church? What does the church do? What does our church do? Those are the questions. For me, I think about growing up in my little, my little town, Victor, Montana, and I could stand on my front porch and look to the north, and I could see a block and a half from my house was this 100-year-old white church building with stained glass windows and a steeple, Victor Federated Church. And that's where my family and I went on and off. And for me, at that point in my life, church was that place. It was the white building with a steeple and stained glass windows with people with white hair on the inside. That's what it was. 
Went to college, and I started to kind of try to grasp and understand my faith. I was an athlete, and I sort of had this transactional understanding of God. And I thought, well, if I pray and go to church and bring my penance to the altar, then God has to bless me with all my academic and athletic dreams. So church was a place where I paid my penance. I I logged my time so the blessings of God would shower upon me. It didn't work out too well in the long run, the way I thought it would. When I, when I got married and started having a family, my wife and I, we started going to a church and my, my heart exploded. I mean, the gospel invaded me. And I just, I fell in love with Jesus. And the church was a place I just went to, to be fed. And I sat under the preached word and I just went to consume and soak. I was a giant sponge. And then somewhere along the line, God's, the vision of the church has shifted for me. Yeah, it's a place to sit under sound teaching and, and to, to soak in biblical truths and to, to enjoy rich relationship with the body of Christ. It's also a place where we are to be um, radically different than the world. It's a place where we're called to steward our gifts. It, it, the church is, is heaven's outpost on earth. and It's all those things. And, and I, as I asked myself this question a couple weeks ago, what is the church? I found myself thinking, what is the church? What do I, what does the scriptures reveal about what is the church? The Westminster Confession of Faith defines the church in this way. It's kind of wordy. The whole number of the elect, this is the church, the whole number of the elect that have been, are, or shall be gathered into one under Christ, the head thereof. Kind of old Englishy. Our Legionnaires website puts it this way. The church consists of those whom the Lord has called out of the world, into union and fellowship with Christ, and into communion with one another. It's a good definition of the church. Uh, uh, Wayne Grudem in his Systematic Theology book has a really simple definition of the church. Here's what he says. The church is the community of all true believers for all time. The word church in the New Testament, the Greek word, is ekklesia, and it means uh, the assembly of called out ones. The assembly of called out ones. So what is the church? Let me kind of run through, if I took an overview of, of all of Scripture and try to give you a systematic definition of the church, let me run through this rather quickly. If you want to take notes, feel free to take notes. What is the church? Well, firstly, we're to think about the church as being something that is set apart. It's not of this world. It's different. It, it, it's holy. It's, it's, it's other than. It's set apart to be used by God. The church is, is biblically speaking, it, it's comprised of all those, according to Romans and 1 Corinthians, who are called to be saints, holy ones, or the holy called ones. As we look at the Old Testament, the nation of Israel, they were a holy nation. And similarly, when we look at the New Testament church, we look at the New Testament, the church is set apart as holy, according to 2 Timothy 2.21. The church is chosen to be holy, according to Ephesians 1.4. The church is, is God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, according to Colossians 3.12. The church, according to 1 Peter 2, is a holy priesthood, a holy nation. According to 1 Corinthians 3, a holy temple. A simple definition of holy is set apart for sacred use. When something is holy, it is set apart for sacred use. It's free of defilement, that it might be used to bring glory to God. The church is set apart. Church is also a unified assembly. The Apostle Paul, often in his writings, he speaks about the church being a body. In in Romans 12, verses 4 through 5, Paul says, for as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So we in the church, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. And so as we think about the church, it's this interconnected, interdependent thing. Uh, the church is the body of Christ. Another way to think about the interconnected nature of the church is to think about it as a family. 
The church is the family of God. Romans 8 and 9 and Galatians 5 and Ephesians 1 tell us that each member of the church has become an adopted son or an adopted daughter of the family of God. Those in the church who, who are members of the household of God. And, and Hebrews tells us in Hebrews 2 that, that as members of the household of God, Jesus is our elder brother. He's not ashamed to call us brothers. And then when you look at how Jesus taught the church to pray in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew, do you remember how it starts, the Lord's Prayer? Our Father. Not Jesus' Father. As the family of God, we collectively approach the throne of God, and as we pray together, we say collectively as the family of God, Our Father. We are the family of God. We're interconnected. We're interdependent. This set-apart, unified assembly is the place where the redeemed family of God dwells. I read this week, To those whose experience of family is dysfunctional in this world, the experience of belonging to a community of brothers and sisters is redemptive and restorative, particularly when when they experience the loving concern and fellowship of those who are of the household of faith. Maybe there are some of you in here who have experienced a renewed hope in the love that you have received from the family of God. There might be some of you in here who bear deep scars from a dysfunctional family experience, but you've had that restored through the loving affection of brothers and sisters in Christ. A couple years ago, well, seven years ago actually, went through a very, 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 very challenging season. And I'd been in ministry for a long time, and I kind of had this mentality that for some reason it was very uncomfortable for me to receive love from others. I was the guy that was going to be in charge. I was the guy that did the visitations. I was the guy that did the funerals. I was the guy that showed up at the hospital rooms. And in a, in a super tragic ex, um, uh, experience for our family, I, I had a niece who was 17 who had taken her own life. And uh, it was just devastating, absolutely devastating for my family. And I can remember the day of her funeral. I, I, I drove up to where the funeral was in a town that I had used to live in. And, my, and I'm getting ready to officiate my niece's funeral. And into the church comes these five men who I worked with in my other church that was two hours away. And that might not seem like a big deal to you guys. Makes me sad thinking about it. But... Um, to have those men show up in my life at that moment and uh, shore me up and love me and let me cry on their shoulder and let me cry out to God and scream at God and lament and grieve in that way, to have that family there for me was incredible. The church is to be a family. We expand our vision from there. The church is, yes, it's set apart. Yes, it's a unified assembly. It's also local and universal. What do I mean when I say the church is universal? Well, the church is comprised of all believers in all places for all times. In 1 Corinthians, Paul writes this, chapter 12, verse 13. He says, For we were all baptized by one spirit into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, slave or free. We were all given the one spirit to drink. So when Paul writes this, what he's saying, he says that anyone who believes is part of the family of God. They're part of the body of Christ. They have received the spirit as evidence as such. Which means that all those who have received salvation through Jesus Christ comprise the universal church, past, present, and future. The universal church consists of everyone, everywhere, for all time who is found to be in Christ. So right now, as we gather in this place, all over this valley, all over this state, all over this country, to the ends of the earth, there are hundreds and thousands of churches where born-again, spirit-filled believers are gathering and worshiping, and we are a part of the same church. We are the universal church. We're together. And there's awesome churches in this town. 
I've had the great pleasure in my seven months of having lunch and connecting with some of the other local pastors. It's so encouraging to hear the unique vision and the way God is moving in other local churches in our community. We don't have to fight. We're not competing for anything. We're yoked together for the glory of God in this valley. That's an awesome thing. So that's what the universal church is. What about the local church? I've heard the local church described as heaven's outpost on earth, or as one of our elders put it to me this week in a text, the church is an outpost of the kingdom. And when we look at the epistles or the letters that Paul writes, he often writes his letters to churches, right? He's writing to these local churches that existed in the known world at that time, to the churches in Corinth. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 1-2, he addresses the letter to the church of God, which is in Corinth. Thessalonians, he says, the church of the Thessalonians. In the, in the book of Philippians, Paul writes to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi. And when he's writing the book of Galatians, it's not to one church, it's to many local churches throughout the region of Galatia. So Paul addresses his letter to the churches of Galatia. Think of it this way. The universal church is comprised of everyone who belongs to Christ. Members of the universal church find fellowship and edification in the local church. We are in a local church. It's universal but it's also local. We're also to think about the church as being both on earth and in heaven. When you read the book of Hebrews, there's this incredible chapter, Hebrews chapter 11, they call it the Hall of Faith or the Faith Hall of Fame. Different people call it different things, but, but the author of Hebrews, he enumerates all of these Old Testament figures that lived by faith and their faith was credited to them as righteous. And he goes from like, from like Enoch to Noah all the way down to the prophets and he's talking about these people that are of faith. And it was their faith that saved them. And these were people that had been long dead. And then in chapter 12, he begins chapter 12, verse 1, by writing, Therefore, church, living people who are alive on earth at the time that I'm writing this letter, therefore, people within the local church, he's saying, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. So he says to the church that was existing at the time, and he says to the church today, we're surrounded by a cloud of witnesses. These are the saints that have gone before us, who are gathered around the throne right now, worshiping, just as we are worshiping. The church is both visible and invisible, universal and local. These witnesses are part of the universal church. Think about it. Think about the study we just did in, in Genesis. We talked about Abel and Noah and Abraham and Sarah and Isaac. They're all mentioned in Hebrews 11. Jacob and Joseph and Moses and Rahab and Gideon and Barak and Samson and David and Japheth and Samuel and the prophets. These are the cloud of witnesses that are a part of the church. At the end of Hebrews, the author continues in verse 22. He says, so you, and he's speaking to a church that exists on earth at this time. He says, you, church, have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. And so there's this sense that as we are Christians gathered in this place, as we assemble in the local church here on earth, we're also joining this heavenly assembly. This heavenly assembly that is currently taking place in the throne room of heaven, this great cloud of witnesses that is worshiping the living God. The same elder that I was texting this week, Mike Robinson, he's just super awesome that he is on our elder team. He, he is, I want to read you the text he sent me this week because him and I were going back and forth. He says, yeah, the church is the outpost of the kingdom, we are seated with Christ in heaven, and hence a part of the heavenly reign. We also still live in a fallen world under the authority of another king. We exist to excise the kingdom's influence 
to all of the cosmos. This idea, so there's this picture of us in the local church. It's like our feet are on earth, but our head is in heaven. I heard someone describe it like this. Like when you're watching a TV show or a movie, and you're watching this world take place, and the actors are acting, and then one of the actors turns and looks at the camera, and he speaks to the camera. Like that actor is living in two spaces at once. He's living in the scene being played out on the screen, but he's also speaking into the reality of the viewer. Similarly, when we gather in this place, yes, we're here present worshiping, but we're also joining the heavenly voices of the universal church. It's an incredible thought. So what is the church? The church is the set-apart body of Christ, both universal and local. It's a unified assembly of the family of God on heaven and in, in heaven and on earth. And so as we think about that, it is so much bigger than the right here and the right now. This is awesome that we can gather. It's awesome that we can sing great songs. It's awesome that we can sit under the preached word, that we can connect with one another and I know I just shared a lot of information. It's a lot to take in. But if you get nothing else from this little definition of what the church is, pause this morning and recognize that you and I, as the church gathered in Medford, Oregon, we are a part of something so much bigger than we ever could realize. Recognize that God has done something eternal. This is a part of his redemptive plan since before the foundations of the world. He's invited us to be a part of it. And as someone in this room, if you are saved, if you're redeemed, if you've come to Christ, God has pursued you. He's made himself known to you in Christ. If you've trusted in him, you've been saved. He's brought you from death to life. You've been born again. You've been adopted into the family of God. And you are now a part of the church. This church. The church. Universal. Local. The family of God. Set apart. You're a part of it. This is the church. So then the question is, what does the church do? That's the second question. What does the church do? Another way of putting that question would be to say, uh, what is the mission of the church? I read this week that the mission of the church is the task given by God, the people of God, to accomplish in the world. In simplest terms, the mission of the church is the Great Commission, or what one theologian said, the Great Commission is a clear, unambiguous statement of the church's mission in the world. And so as we gather here, the gathered church, our, our task as the gathered church, as the body of Christ, is to make disciples by bearing witness to Jesus Christ, the Son, in the power of the Holy Spirit for the glory of God the Father. Do you see how the triune fullness of God is brought to bear when we live out our, our calling as a church? As the church, our, our responsibility, our duty is to make disciples by bearing witness to Jesus Christ, the Son, in the power of the Holy Spirit for the glory of God the Father. There's much that can be said about the duty of the church. I have volumes of books in my office about the duty of the church, but most fundamentally, the mission of the church is laid out in the Great Commission. This Great Commission is this statement of Jesus. It's his unflinching marching orders for the church. All four Gospels and the book of Acts have a version of the Great Commission. The first five books of the New Testament reinforce the Great Commission. In Matthew's Gospel, most succinctly and most clearly, Jesus, it says, the 11 disciples went to Galilee, and, and there they met Jesus, and Jesus came to them, the risen Jesus, and he said, beginning in verse 18, verse 28, he said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So disciples, go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Teach them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. In John's gospel, very simply, Jesus is quoted as saying to his disciples, Peace be with you, as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. 
In the book of Acts, the risen Christ is preparing to ascend. In the last recorded words of Jesus to his disciples in the book of Acts, Jesus says, you, church, you disciples, will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So at the center of our understanding of what the church does is this picture of going or of sending. It's foundational, it's fundamental to what it means to be the church. We are to go make disciples. As the Father has sent Jesus, he is sending us. We are to be his witnesses to the ends of the earth. And if you look at church history for the first like 1,500 years of the church, the idea of mission was, was really something that was thought of more as, as uh, something that took place within the function of the Trinity. Sending was seen as something that was pictured in the sending of Jesus, the Son, by the Father. Sending was seen as the, uh, the sending of the Holy Spirit by the Father and the Son. And so as we think about what it means to be sent, or we think about the mission of God, uh, it, it's, it's God's action to save humankind, and, and, and we have to anchor our understanding of mission into this, this, tri this Trinitarian understanding of mission. It's the theological underpinnings that informs why we must go. Because Jesus first went. He's the ultimate missionary who left the comforts of heaven and came down to planet Earth to seek and save the lost. I read this week that this is a crucial point. We will not rightly understand the mission of the church without the conviction that the sending of Jesus by the Father is still the essential mission. And as we look at the mission of Jesus to seek and save the lost, he, he called sinners to repentance. He, he called them to faith. And certainly we see him caring for those who had physical and material need. We see Jesus healing the sick and restoring sight to the blind. We see him feeding the hungry, delivering the oppressed, even raising the dead to life. However, there's not a single example in the New Testament of Jesus going into a village or a town for the sole purpose of meeting physical needs. Every physical need that he met pointed to the ultimate truth of the gospel. One person puts it this way. The Son of Man never ventured out on a healing or exorcism tour. His stated purpose was to seek and save the lost. And so Jesus didn't just come to share a message. He became the means through which people would be found and saved. The mission of Christ culminated on the cross where Jesus took the place of sinners and died in their place, died in your place, died in my place. It was the risen Christ who made a way for lost sinners to become found saints. And it was Jesus who gathered his disciples and spoke a commission over them. And as Jesus spoke a commission over his disciples, and over his church, he speaks a commission over this gathering of disciples. In this church. To our church today, the words of Jesus ring true. They're our unflinching marching orders. As the Father has sent me, Jesus says, so I am sending you. Not a suggestion. Be my witnesses to the end of the earth. It's a command of the Lord. Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded. This is the commission of Christ over his church. I think of those first disciples who were commissioned and sent. They were these bumbling buffoons. They had no idea what they were doing. They were uh, terrified and afraid, but yet once empowered and emboldened by the Holy Spirit, they went out and they proclaimed the gospel, and communities were transformed. They didn't go to transform communities. They go to proclaim another kingdom. As people were living under the rule of Caesar, they said, no, there's a greater king, and he's actually the king of the universe. We're going to preach that kingdom. And as men and women turned their face to Jesus, got born again, whole entire communities were transformed because their hearts were transformed by the proclamation of the gospel. What is the gospel? I love how John Piper puts it. 
The gospel is good news because it brings a person into the everlasting and ever-creasing joy of Jesus Christ. He's not merely the hope or the rope, rather, that pulls us from the threatening waves. He is the solid beach under our feet and the air in our lungs and the beat of our heart and the warm sun on our skin and the song in our ears and the arms of our beloved. The gospel is the good news that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, died for our sins. He rose again, eternally triumphant over his enemies so that there is now no condemnation for those who believe, but only everlasting joy. That's the gospel. And as that bumbling band of disciples went about the world, the church was born, not because of human ingenuity or, or, or an act of human will, but because it was God's plan to use human vessels to advance his kingdom on planet earth. Once these men and women were empowered by the Holy Spirit, the church exploded across the face of the world. The church didn't grow because there was a five-step plan for a large church. It wasn't because they built a megaplex that seated a thousand people. It was none of that worldly, corporate, man-centered junk. It was the power of God alive in the people of God, accomplishing the will of God across the face of the earth. All they did was be obedient to go, to be sent, to proclaim the gospel. God did everything else. It's an amazing thing. We get to read the scriptures about how God moved then, and we get to walk in the power of the Spirit today and watch God move today in our midst, in our valley. It's incredible that God invites us to be a part of what he is doing. As we think about the mission of the church, as we consider what it means for the church to live out the great commission, I think of the the great commandment and the great commission of Jesus. He tells us that we we have to love him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. This is worship. This is the vertical orientation of our lives. And as men and women who are worshiping God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, we then, we then can engage in those horizontal relationships of loving our neighbor as ourself in the name of Jesus and in the power of Jesus. And that's the same power that propels us to then go and make disciples into the whole world, to, 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 to baptize them into the family of God. And as I see the church, both then and now, worshiping the living God, walking in obedience, we see God accomplishing his will. So the church is a set-apart body of Christ. It's both universal and local. It's a unified assembly of the family of God on heaven and in earth. The church is sent into the world in the power of the Holy Spirit to be a witness of Jesus Christ, proclaiming the gospel and making disciples for the glory of God. That's what the church is. That's what the church does. I'm going to say it again. The church is the set-apart body of Christ, both universal and local, unified assembly of the family of God on heaven and in earth. The church is sent into the world in the power of the Holy Spirit to be the witnesses for Christ, proclaiming the gospel, and making disciples for the glory of God. That's what the church is. That's what the church does. So here's the question, church. As we gather here this morning at Heritage Christian Fellowship in Medford, Oregon, in the year 2021, what does our church do? As we gather under those truths of what the church is and what the church does, as that guides the way we think about this question, What does the church do? How do we live in obedience to this commission that God has given his church? How do we live out the truths that that we are to be the church? I've been a part of some really great ministries in the past. I've seen some really awesome things happen in in churches around the country. This is the third church I've been on staff with in 20 years. And I've taken a lot of notes, and I've learned a lot, made a lot of mistakes. I've shared with you in the previous weeks some, some gross motives and ambitions that lived in my heart that, that colored the way that I, I, I chose to approach uh, church ministry. But I think, you know, coming here seven months ago, you, you know the story of, of how God moved my family here. It just felt like I was just so tired of, of some of the 
the, the, the way in which people played church, and we kind of went through the motions, and in, in the way in which church growth literature got placed up above just what it meant to biblically be the church, and I'm seeing some of the stuff play out in the church culture, and I just thought, I just don't want to do that anymore. I don't want to play church anymore. I don't want to pretend church. I, if, we're, if we only have so many breaths to breathe, if I have only so many words to speak, I want them to be for the gospel and for the church, not for something else. And so as we moved here, that was our hope. It was just to join this family of believers and, and not, 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 not pretend or play church, but just authentically be the church of Christ in this valley and beyond. That's why we're here. And man, these seven and eight months that we've been here, it's been so awesome to see the heart of the people of this church, the heart of the staff, the, the heartbeat of the elder team that leads and directs Heritage Christian Fellowship. And as I stand here today, I'm, if I'm honest, there's anxiety. Because we're going to share a vision. How, how we believe God is calling our church to move forward in obedience. And I'm very sensitive to, like, like I don't want to feel like we're doing a timeshare pitch here, right? It's not it at all. It's not at all like, hey, for what? No. As we sit under the weight of the Great Commission, as we sit under the weight of the gospel and the responsibility that comes with being the church, in obedience, we want to mobilize our church fully, not just the paid staff, not just the leadership, but our church collectively to, to be the church in our valley, to join other great works that are happening in our midst, to, to be used by God to expand his kingdom for his glory. And as I look at the plan, I believe God has revealed himself to us in this. It's not from one man or one woman. Over the last six or seven months, we have gathered collectively as a staff team, as key leaders. We've gathered as elders. We have sought the Lord over and over again, God, reveal yourself, not through one man or one voice, but through the collective, through the plurality. God, speak to us as a community as we seek to be obedient to what it means to be the church. And as a result of that work, we have we've developed this. If you want to go to our website, even right now, if you have a mobile phone, if you go to our website, there's a little icon that says, View the Updated 2021 Strategic Plan. I don't have my glasses on, so I'm squinting. Uh, and you can see a PDF version of this. I got about 100 of these printed sitting outside in the lobby. I just want to, can I just share with you for a few minutes of where we sense God taking our church in this year and in the future? Something I'm incredibly excited about. It's a new season for our church. The world is emerging from a global pandemic that has just wrought devastation on economics, on community, on unity. We're emerging from that. The Rogue Valley is beginning to rebuild from last year's fires. A new page has been turned for Heritage Christian Fellowship. This is a new season for our church. And so we've been meeting and praying and seeking God collectively. And we believe that he's revealed himself to us. The, the, the Great Commission are, are the unflinching marching orders of Jesus. And that without on the forefront of our mind, this call of Christ to, to go into the world boldly to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ, to, to, to see men, women, families come to faith in Christ, to see communities transformed, to see these, these disciples raised up to be sent out as well to proclaim the gospel, to, to put their hand to the work that God would have them. This is the mission of the church. It's the mission of Heritage Christian Fellowship. It's a target that we're aiming for. We want to make disciples who make disciples. Here's the mission of Heritage Christian Fellowship. I encourage you to write this down and memorize this. Heritage Christian Fellowship is a gospel-centered body of believers dedicated to making disciples of Jesus who make disciples of Jesus. This is what we do. Heritage Christian Fellowship is a gospel-centered body of believers dedicated to making disciples of Jesus who make disciples of Jesus. This is what we do. What is a disciple? Here's something else we put language to as a church. 
A disciple is someone who has faith in Jesus, who is growing in the likeness of Jesus, and who is leading others to follow Jesus. This isn't something we just came up with willy-nilly. We labored. I'm looking at Mitch out there, one of our elders. We labored over this. We wanted to have a simple to understand but comprehensive understanding of what a disciple of Jesus is. A disciple is someone who has faith in Jesus, who is growing in the likeness of Jesus, who is leading others to follow Jesus. All three of those attributes reflect what a disciple of Jesus is. You see the, the faith piece, you see the transformational piece, and you see the missional piece in that statement. And so everything that we do, this forms a target. The red bullseye in the center of the target is producing that in the lives of people again and again and again and again and again and again and again until we die and go be with the Lord. And you see that it's multiplicative. It's not just, it's not just raising up people who confess Christ as Lord. It's raising up people who confess Christ as Lord, who are being transformed and formed slowly into the image of Jesus, and who are then going out in obedience and leading others to follow Jesus. It's a missional, multiplicative vision for what a disciple is, Every dollar that we spend, every ounce of ministry that we put our hand to, every thought that we think is aimed towards this, we think this is a biblical vision for what the church is mandated to be. So how do we do it? If that's the bullseye, what's the bow? Well, the bow is our core values. We've talked long about our core values here at Heritage Christian Fellowship. We had a whole devotional series on them in the winter. Our core values are five simple values that are, they, they, they are the thrust behind everything that we do. They are the taut bow string, ready to fling the arrows forward. What are our core values? Our gospel centrality, authentic worship, right doctrine, and biblical interpretation, discipleship, and missional focus. In the, in the document that we've prepared for you, that's all spelled out. What we mean by those statements, please read that. In our, in our document that we are giving to you today. Also, a robust de definition that goes along with our discipleship definition, what a disciple does, what a disciple is, what a disciple uh, displays. We talk about the inward, outward, and upward growth of a disciple. Please read what a disciple is. Read the deep, robust understanding of our core values. And so we've got the target of making disciples who have faith in Jesus, who are growing in the likeness of Jesus, and who are leading others to follow Jesus. We've got the core values of gospel centrality, of missional focus, of discipleship, of authentic worship, of right doctrine and biblical interpretation pulled back tight, and we have four arrows that go in that bow that thrust everything we do forward to be obedient to the Great Commission, to making disciples of Jesus. We call those our core ministries. And we labored over these core ministries as a staff. We, we, we looked at all that we do as a church. We, we, we labored, we talked, the elders joined, we figured out that we can, all that we do as a church, all the things that we do on the foundation of our, of our core values come down to these core ministries. Here's the four things we do as a church to accomplish the Great Commission, to be obedient to Jesus. We gather for corporate worship. Right now is a foundational, fundamental thing that we do to make disciples of Jesus Christ. Gather the saints to sit under the preached word, to engage in biblical fellowship, to worship the living God. The second thing we do is we, we, we develop discipleship communities. Disciples aren't made uh, collectively in a big, large group. Disciples are made when life on life happens, when men and women are investing in each other's lives. And so we create discipleship communities, men's ministry, women's ministry, affinity groups, and huddle groups. Pastor Jeremy is owning this. Pastor Mitch owns a worship or authentic worship ministry. 
Pastor Jeremy is owning our discipleship community ministry, creating communities where people can gather around the Word of God, enter into genuine, authentic, meaningful, vulnerable relationship where we can confess and repent of sin, pray for one another, learn the Bible, be transformed into the image of Jesus. The third arrow in our, in our bow is the arrow of family ministry. Earlier on when Brent was up on the stage, he talked about that's the, that's the, that's the, that's the core ministry that he owns and champions. We, we just have a unique calling here at Heritage to, to come alongside families, to equip families, to, to disciple and follow, and, and follow Jesus. We, we believe that what happens at home is more important than what happens in church in the lives of families. We want to equip moms and dads and parents to, to train and disciple their children. We want to create a rich place where families can come and be equipped to walk with Jesus, to become disciples, to make disciples. We've got equipping events planned for grandparents and parents and adolescents. So family ministry is that third arrow that's unique to us. And the fourth arrow in our bow is mission and outreach. We, we confessed as we were working on this plan that that's our weakest area of ministry right now. We have a great partnership in Uganda, but, we're, but after that it falls off pretty quick. And one of the things we, we recognize as a church is that's an area of major development for us. Pastor Aaron Beamish owns our mission and outreach, and we're putting together this slowly, patiently listening to God with the committee. We're putting together a strong vision for what it looks like for us as a church to engage in the mission field to the ends of the earth, but to also meaningfully engage the mission field in our valley. Because there is a right mission field right out our doors. And so I want you to turn the page if you're following along, because I want to introduce you to two people. And maybe you've met, maybe you haven't. Their names are Joe and Jenny. Joe and Jenny Jackson from Jackson County. They're fictitious. Joe and Jenny Jackson from Jackson County. Did you know that there's about 225,000 people in Jackson County? Did you know that over 170,000 people in our county do not know Jesus Christ? Over three-quarters of the people that call Jackson County home have either rejected Jesus, they rejected the idea of religion, or they just never heard the gospel. Like 78%, only, and only of like 23% would even identify as being connected to some sort of a Christian religion. How many of those people actually know Jesus? I don't know. So Joe and Jenny Jackson, to me, become... Like, why? Why are we making disciples, Paul? Why do we want to send out missionaries? Why do we want to plant churches? Why do we want to mobilize our church? Why can't we just sit under the preaching, come in on a Sunday morning, uh, just hear good preaching, have some friends, and go back and live my life? Why are you so concerned with sending out people uh, into the mission field? Why? Because the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. There's 170,000 people in our county. I'm talking people that are 5 minutes, 3 minutes, 10 minutes, 14 minutes from this building who do not know Jesus. And it's the one thing we've been told, go, we're being sent, make disciples, be the witness for Jesus, tell the hope of the good news of the gospel to anybody that had ears to hear. So who is Joe and Jenny Jackson to you? If you're a believer, who is Joe and Jenny Jackson? For some of you, it's a hardworking family raising kids, working two jobs, 60, 70 hour work weeks, trying to live in the struggle of Southern Oregon <clears throat> in this difficult housing market, hand to mouth financially, love their kids, wants what's best for their kids, they're so busy they can't hardly breathe. You know who they are, they're Joe and Jenny. For some of you, they are that empty nester family, worked hard, built up a good retirement, have a nice home. They got a nest egg. They're not stressed out about financial things, but their lives are just boring, and there's no impact. And if they're honest with you, golfing has become a really short and, and simple and, and illegitimate way to find meaning and purpose. And Joe and Jenny Jackson are trying to figure out, is this what life is? Just to, just to kind of ride off into the sunset? Isn't there more? They don't know Jesus. 
For some of you, Joe and Jenny Jackson are this couple that lives down off Bear Creek, or they live in the homeless camp. They're a married couple that came here from, a, from Portland, and they're destitute, they're homeless, they're struggling with mental health struggles, perhaps struggling a bit with, with some addiction issues, uh, but they're, they're searching, and they want to know the truth about who they are, about who God is. They don't know that they are loved. For some of you, Joe and Jenny Jackson are your neighbors, the Joneses. You wave at them and smile. They wave at you and smile. You talk sports and weather for the last six years. Maybe they have nice cars. Maybe they have a good income. They do not know Jesus and they have no hope. And if Jesus were to come back tomorrow, it would be awful for them. So this is Joe and Jenny Jackson. Why has God put Heritage Christian Fellowship in the Rogue Valley in Southern Oregon in the year 2021? I think for Joe and Jenny Jackson. I think we're called to be obedient, to love these people, to be disciples, to go to, to our neighbors and friends and to the end of the earth. And so what we've done in this plan, if you want to flip through it on your own, I would please encourage you to do that because we have a five-year plan. This plan is just very detailed, date-specific goals that each ministry leader has set for their team. Achievable goals, taking many steps to try to figure out how we can take all of our resources and time and not just do church activity, but be focused like a laser. How can we make disciples who have faith in Jesus, who are growing in the likeness of Jesus, who are being or, or leading others to follow Jesus? And this document, this plan, is a reflection of hundreds and hundreds of hours of work and prayer of seeking the Lord so that we can be obedient to, to being the church of Christ in this valley for this season. And so, as I thought about sharing this with you, I thought of some concerns, potential concerns that might come up. And honestly, I would love to talk to you. I'm going to be around after church. Grab me if you want to talk. I'm going to have coffee. I'd love to talk to you about how this lives out, how this plays out, how you can be a part of it. This is not a radical change for Heritage Christian Fellowship. This is just in line with who we've always been. It's clarifying and tightening where we're going. Heritage Christian Fellowship is a gospel-centered body of believers dedicated to making disciples of Jesus who make disciples of Jesus. This is who we've always been, and this is where we've always been wanting to go. This is just the next step. It's a new chapter. Sometimes I think to myself, and maybe you think, but Paul, we don't even own a building. We meet in a, a school. We set up chairs and classrooms every Sunday morning. When I lived in Milwaukee, the, we were by all these universities, and these graduate students would come in, and they would start attending church, and they would say, hey, I'm on this two-year program. I'm getting my master's or my PhD, and so I don't really, I'm only going to be here two years, so I'm just going to kind of just buy my time until I go to where I'm going to spend, you know, my career. And I said, no, like, you're here. Be obedient now. Don't wait for some resource, something, some golden tablet to fall from heaven. Delayed disobedience is still disobedience. So would it be great if we had an awesome building and a great place for everyone together? Sure. We don't need that. Paul did it in home churches. So we don't have a building that we own. I don't think that means anything. I think we can put our hand to this work, and God might have us in this school for the entirety until he comes back. I don't know. Maybe he's going to bless us with a building someday. That'd be awesome, but I don't know. But we're called to be obedient to this. I think maybe it's kind of frightening. If you're like me, it's kind of frightening to... to if you're hearing what I'm saying, I'm asking you to be a part of what God's doing here. I'm, I'm imploring, I'm kind of begging you as a pastor who wants what's best for you and your family, who wants you to bring glory and honor to God, who wants your life to count for the glory of God. I'm asking for investment, right? I'm asking for you to say, yeah, I, I think this is what God would have me do. I think this is important. Not just to sit around under the teaching of some rock star pastor who's some senior leader. No, like, like we are a family. And we've got different people who have different functions in this body, but we are together as a family of God to be the church in this valley. And so 
So I, I'm asking you to prayerfully consider what it would look like for you to fully invest in being a part of what God is doing through our church. Not now. we got all summer. So here's three things I want you to do. Three things. Would you pray? Would you just join me for this summer, praying for our church, asking God to, to, to be moving in the mission field, softening the hearts of Joe and Jenny Jackson in our midst, Asking God to send workers into Joe and Jenny Jackson's life to share the hope of the gospel. Would you pray with me that our church continues to grow healthy and strong, where we love one another and we're interdependent on one another in a biblical way? Would you, would you ask God to give us steadfastness? Because as the world hurls further and further away from the values of Jesus, the more this church, the, the set out, set apart, holy nature of the church is going to stand out more. Persecution's coming. So pray for steadfastness and obedience in the face of persecution. I'm asking you, secondly, to engage. Just be a part of the family. Just show up. Stick around for a few minutes after church. Have a conversation with someone you've never met before. Pick someone on staff to pray for. Help pick up chairs. Join a team if you want to. But just engage. Just be present. Emotionally present, relationally present. Just engage this. As you're praying, just engage in the life of the church. And that would lead to the third, the third thing I'm asking for some of you. This isn't for all of you. For some of you, you're just visiting. You're checking out Heritage. And, and, and a great place for you to start is just to pray. But for some of you that have been around for a while and you've been kind of wondering like what God has for you here and maybe you feel underutilized, you're not sure where your place is and where you belong, would you prayerfully consider investing your life into what God is doing in our midst? Investing your time and your talent, giving back so that the kingdom may expand and God may be glorified and the church may, may have the impact God desires for it to have. And so today is Communion Sunday. As we think about praying and engaging and investing, we have an opportunity as the family of God to gather around the table in, in, in community. So maybe you grabbed a, a little element when you came in, maybe you didn't. If you haven't, you'll, you'll have an opportunity here to grab elements. But I'm going to invite Mitch and the team to come up. We're going to actually, I'm just going to encourage you to, to hold on to your element. Hold on as a family to, to, to spend time together in this next four or five minutes as we're singing this song, as you're singing the lyrics. Would you just... Would you present your heart to God? Would you, would you, would you open up your mind to, to, to turn your face heavenward and ask God how it is, what it is, where it is he might be leading you in this season of life? When we look at the, what the scripture says about communion, the Apostle Paul tells us that, that, that we are to examine ourselves before we take the cup. Use this next four or five minutes as we're singing the song to examine your heart, to examine your mind as we sit in the context of the family of God and ask God to reveal how it is he may be moving you to be a part of what he's doing in this season of life. Let's pray. Father, thankful for this church. So thankful for these men and women, God. So thankful that you have brought us together for such a time as this, God. So thankful that, that you invite us, fallible, small, finite, broken human beings, to be a part of your perfect, infinite, beautiful plan. Thankful that you've, you've, you've opened our eyes to the truth uh, that is found in your Son, that you have died in our place, Jesus, that you have overcome sin and death. And, and, and when we confess you as Lord and believe in our heart, God, that you raised Jesus from the dead, we are saved and we go from death to life. We join the family of God, the church of Christ. And so, God, we just we give you our church. God, would you move in our midst? God, would you do something uh, with us collectively that, that we could never do apart? God, would you move in a way where only you would receive the glory? God, open the eyes of the blind, God. I pray for the Joe and Jenny Jacksons within a, 
within a stone's throw of this building, God, those men and women who are lost and broken and hurting and hiding it. God, we know the hope of the gospel is the hope that brings new life and joy, salvation, eternal promises. And so, God, would you do what you got to do to to utilize this church and your church in this valley, God, to, to step into those dark places, to proclaim the truth of the gospel, that your kingdom may expand and you may receive the glory. Lord, we love you so much. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.